Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. You can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Yes. What's up, Erica? It's kind of a sad day today. Not even kind of. It's a pretty sad day today. It's a big bummer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was a very Paul-like response. We'll get to that. <laughs> I'm sure everybody listening knows today, December 8th, the day the podcast comes out, is the 40th anniversary of John Lennon's murder in New York City. God. I can't believe it's been 40 years. I know. Yeah. Not that I was alive for it, but... I remember the 20th anniversary very clearly. It's, God, time flies. I remember 25. I was here in New York for 25. And living around here, too, around the Upper West Side. So I remember all the vigils. And I'm sure that there'll be quite a bit of that today. So we don't want to do our usual shenanigans that we do at the top of every podcast. But I did want to take a second just to remind you guys that we do have our monthly giveaways going on. And thank you so much. You guys are killing it with entering. And thank you so much for your participation, for following us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and leaving us reviews. And it's just been wonderful to hear from you guys. And uh, yeah, so we've still got December's going on. Obviously, it just started. This month, you can win a Strawberry Fields tote bag, mm-hmm. a magnet from the Cavern Club, which is pretty sweet, I gotta say. I have it on my fridge. And a set of coasters that was given to me by the fine folks at the Fab Four Cafe, which is on the dock in Liverpool, right where you get the ferry to cross the Mersey. And these coasters are pretty cool because they come together <laughs> to, make a, yeah. uh, to make a puzzle. <laughs> so they, they form a, a Beatles picture so fun if you have kids or if you just like want to show off your coaster game so you can go to our website bcthebeatles.com to enter we have a giveaway link on the what is this left hand side yeah you can also click on our link in bio and twitter and go straight there so make sure to do that we'll have a new one in january but yeah you've got a little bit left to go about uh 24 days that is quite a sweet prize if i could enter i would I know. Well, you know, it's it's December. It's like holidays. You got to do something special. So yeah. And congrats to our two past winners. We've been doing this for two months now. Uh, Megan and Michael, uh, you guys rock. And um, yeah, excited to see who's going to join them in the winner's circle. Ba, ba, ba. Exciting stuff. Yes. And now to our main feature, we talk with documentarian Sarah Stacy about her new John Lennon documentary. joined today by Sarah Stacy. She's a podcaster and radio producer who recently released the audio documentary Lennon, Lennon 40 Years On. Um, and what it does is it mixes firsthand experiences of the day that John was killed with historian analysis and John's own words um, and his music. The documentary looks at the impact of John's murder on what it had on fans, the cities he called home, the music world and his own legacy. Sarah has a master's in radio production and is a content creator with Ireland's Today FM station, working on their flagship show, The Last Word. Sarah also hosts the new podcast, Tell Me About Your Dog, 
which Erica has been on, <laughs> where she interviews dog owners about their best friends. And I think on that episode that you were on, Erica, we found out that who Rosie's favorite beetle is. Yes, my dog's favorite beetle is... I'll let you hear it when you download Sarah's podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Go listen to the podcast. It's it's super, super fun. All I'm going to say is that my dog and I do not have the same favorite beetle. You have like opposites. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well, as far as you're concerned. Anyway. <laughs> you welcome, Sarah. Podcast. Let's talk to Sarah. Yeah. Hi. Thank <laughs> Hi, you so Sarah. much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm so excited because this is my favorite Beatles podcast. Of all That's time. so fantastic. Oh Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I've been listening since you guys uh, started it. So it's just really exciting to be on it. Aww. Aww. Well, that's so sweet. We, I mean, we're so happy you're here. And we always ask our guests, tell us a little bit about yourself, especially how did you become a Beatles fan? I've been a Beatles fan for as long as I can remember. Uh, it's probably a cliche to say that, but um, I think most people have a specific moment in their lives when they discovered the Beatles, but I don't really have that because I literally cannot remember a time when I wasn't a Beatles fan. My parents had the Red and Blue albums on cassette and they were constantly being played around the house and in the car. So it's the first music I have any real memory of hearing. Apparently, as a toddler, I was always asking for the Beatles on car journeys. My dad says I used to shout the word Beatles over and Aww. over. <laughs> as I got older, I just started collecting the albums for myself, read all the books, bought everything there was to buy and just became obsessed. So I think the best way I can describe it is that the Beatles are like a comfort blanket. When I hear them, even today, I just get this feeling of comfort and familiarity that I only really get from them. So that's pretty much how I became a Beatles fan. Oh, I love that description. Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh my God. Yeah. We can all relate to that. Um, I have to ask, are you a red album person or a blue album person? Um, I think to begin with, I was a red album person. One of the first Beatles songs I remember was uh, Yesterday. So I think that's kind of tied up with some of my earliest memories. But I think as I got older, I became more of a Blue Album person. It often happens that way. I thought as a kid, they looked super scary on the Blue Album cover. Like, how did yeah. they become that? With the beers and everything? Like, when you're really young, totally. you know? <laughs> so it takes a while. I used to compare those two pictures, and I just couldn't believe it was the same people. Oh, my God, me yeah. too. I, all the time. Yeah, I mean, how can you change so much in nine years? So crazy. Yeah. When you're that young, you don't really understand facial hair in the same way as no. right now. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> and it's just such a mystery to how you can do that. <laughs> You are a Beatles fan and you're also a radio producer. So how did you get the idea to do this project and how did it come about? Well, I've been working in Today FM, which is a national commercial station here in Ireland since 2017. So I work on a current affairs show and I just constantly get ideas for radio documentaries, most of which never actually see the light of day because I probably shouldn't admit to this on a podcast, but I am terrible at finishing projects. <laughs> I'm great no. at abandoning things. And then I'm like two years later, I realize, oh, yeah, I have all these ideas written down that I've never done. <laughs> so um, the idea came to me in September of last year. I was basically just talking to my dad about John Lennon and it just occurred to me that next year would be the 40th anniversary. And as you know, obviously, December the 8th every year is a big deal 
for Beatles fans, but 40 years is a big anniversary. So out of the blue, my dad just said, well, why don't you make a documentary about it? So I expected that there would be loads of things marking the anniversary. So I started thinking about what I could do that was a little bit different. Uh, I didn't want to make another profile of John's life because there's plenty of those already and I couldn't do any better than that. Uh, But I also didn't want to focus on the specific details of his murder. So I decided to look at his legacy and just try to get to the heart of what he means to people today. So I pitched it to one of my bosses in Today FM and as luck would have it, he also loves the Beatles and that whole era of music in general. So I knew it was something he'd be interested in. Thankfully, he was. And over the summer, I just started interviewing people and putting everything together. So here it is. Let's talk about the documentary and the documentary subject. This is a tough one for a lot of people. I mean, the tragic murder of John Lennon 40 years ago marks the fact that he's been gone more years than he's even been alive. So this is a huge, huge anniversary. Um, and it affects everybody differently depending on whether you were there or not. And one of the things that we get in the documentary is the wide range of feelings and impressions of that day. What were your impressions of that day? Well, I wasn't born in 1980, so I obviously have no first-hand experience or memory of that day. But it was something that I remember becoming aware of quite early on in my life. Uh, When I, I remember when I was learning more about who the Beatles were, I was told, uh, probably by one of my parents, you know, that's John Lennon, and something really sad and terrible happened to him. Obviously, I didn't know all the details of it at the time. But I knew that someone had shot him in New York where he lived. And I do remember thinking about it at a young age and wondering why anyone would do something like that. Uh, You know, when you're a kid, you're kind of naive and you have a very simple view of the world. And it was just like, I don't understand why this would happen. Like, it's a difficult thing for an adult to comprehend, let alone a child. Yeah. And I think... For me, it was something, because I wasn't born either when it happened, Mm. Um, and it's something that, as a Beatles fan, it comes in the package of, like, learning about the Beatles. It's just sort of like, I don't remember ever not knowing that he wasn't dead. Does that make sense? Um, Mm -hmm. I always knew about his murder, and I think that's part of his, as you explore in the documentary, and as we talk a lot about um, in the context of who John was as a person, it's like, that's just part of it. And that's sort of, like, what has made him into this like enigma that he is today is his murder. I really enjoyed hearing everybody's perception of that day and the impact and where they were from the first generation fans that you spoke to. And I sort of experience it now when I speak to younger fans who weren't alive when George Harrison died. It's obviously not kind of the same circumstances, but it sort of makes all of that sort of relatable. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I was nine when George died and I do remember it. And obviously I was a Beatles fan, but yeah, I remember seeing it on the news because I hadn't, I don't think I had heard anything about the fact that he was ill, but yeah, I do remember very clearly learning about John's murder because it was so, it was just such a violent thing to hear about, you know, at that age. I remember not being able to watch that part in A Hard Day's Night where he's in the bath and he's pretending that he was hit by a U-boat or something. You know that part where they're in the hotel room? Yeah. And I remember very clearly thinking, like, 
you know, he wasn't wearing a shirt in that. I was thinking that's where he got shot and he's <gasps> pretending that wow. he's dead in the tub. And like, this oh is horrible. God. Like I had to oh. fast forward past that for years. Wow. Well, it's amazing yeah, how I mean, everyone perceives these things. Cause I, I, that never would have occurred to me. Sorry. Same. Um, no, <laughs> no. Yeah, no, we're never going to watch the same. Okay. <laughs> I, I still get a little like freaked out when I see that scene. <laughs> Oh my God. I'm never going to enjoy John Lennon shirtless again. Thanks, Erica. I know it does do that to you, but there's still plenty of Paul shirtless that you can move on to. It's not the same. Anyway. Yeah. I kind of felt the same about happiness is a warm gun. When I first discovered the white album, I was like, what the hell? Why would he sing this song? But of course, you know, he's making a statement. He doesn't know uh, the future, obviously. And he's also kind of talking about his penis. (laughs) dot 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 it does (laughs) it does it's about sex with yoko what Uh, yeah happiness is a warm gun is i don't think i've ever put that together like geez okay anyway so back to the documentary um (laughs) how did you feel people reacted to it differently because you interviewed people of all ages who were there at least one person susan ryan who was in new york and Mm -hmm. who actively experienced it how are people looking at the event when they were there versus people like us who either weren't alive or weren't old enough to understand it? There was a difference between the two. I mean, with the first gen fans, the people I spoke to were all different ages when he died. Some were young children, some were teenagers, some were adults. But I think the one thing that struck me about all of them was just how much it shocked them. Like, for example, Ken Womack talks about trying to find the reason why it happened, but realizing that there is no reason because it was just completely senseless. And then Susan Ryan, as you said, her story really resonated with me. She was a college student on Long Island at the time, and she just describes everybody on campus crying and being absolutely devastated. And she was someone who used to hang around outside the Dakota where John lived, hoping to see him. She really summed up the pride that New Yorkers felt in having John live in their city. And the word she used to describe how she felt that day was desolation, which I just thought was really powerful. So I really wanted to get the experiences of people who weren't alive in 1980 or who had no memory of it, because as someone in that position myself, I think it's important to highlight our stories as well. And obviously I spoke to both of you about your experiences and I could really relate to what you said Mm -hmm. but I think the key difference is that for us it's as you were saying earlier it's always been part of how we have experienced the Beatles story and we can only imagine how it must have felt to be hit with that news I don't like to think about it obviously but if something like that were were to happen to Paul or Ringo now can you imagine the absolute shock and despair that we would all be hit with I think it made me consider that a bit more Definitely. One thing that Susan actually brought up that I thought was interesting, because it never really occurred to me to think about this, but she really underscored the fact that Chapman, the man who killed John, was not a New Yorker. It never occurred to me that that was important, but it really is. Because you talk a lot about how, how important New York was to John and how safe he felt there and the reason why he was there. And so I guess it is really important to make that distinction that is, this is sort of like an outsider that infiltrated, you know, his safety bubble and, and did this. I appreciate that, too. I mean, as a current New Yorker, I yeah, you're a New Yorker. 
I live only blocks from the Dakota. So New Yorkers, I think, are very protective of their city. I feel better about the fact that as a city, he put his trust in the city and it wasn't the city that betrayed him. Absolutely. I mean, it, it kind of shows in how people reacted in New York as well. You know, when as soon as it happened, they gathered outside the Dakota and I think just showed their appreciation for him and the fact that he chose to live there. So, yeah, when Susan mentioned that, I hadn't really given it much thought either, but I do think it was a very important point to make. Yeah. And they still think of him as one of one of our own. I mean, the outpouring of love on his birthday was amazing over at the Strawberry Fields Memorial. And I'm sure that there will be similar outpourings of grief this week. Are you planning to go down there, Erica? I will probably stop by, but I, I don't know if I'll spend a lot of time there. There are many people who spend the day there as a vigil. I don't mm. think that I have the emotional fortitude to do that, but I probably will stop by. Yeah. Well, speaking of emotional fortitude, um, <laughs> <laughs> you talk, <laughs> you talk um, in the documentary, which I think is a really important point to bring up during this whole horrific event that happened was Paul's reaction to John's murder. And it's legendary, you know, the interview he gives sort of on the spot of, you know, how do you feel, Paul? And he famously says it's a drag. And I love that you include the news clip in there because you can really hear like sort of the circumstances around that interview yeah. and and Paul's tone. Let's talk a little bit about Paul in this. You can't really talk about John without Paul. How did this event and the sort of hullabaloo around it, how did that affect Paul's reputation and perception of him going forward and his talents? God, I, I can't even tell you. I was actually so excited to answer this question because I feel so strongly about it um, yeah. and then Paul is also my favorite Beatles so yeah I could I could talk all day about yeah. this. <laughs> as I said I wasn't around in 1980 but we've all seen that footage and I've yeah. always felt so strongly that that incident marked a kind of turning point in the public's perception of Paul, at least in Britain anyway, because a lot of Americans I spoke to for the documentary didn't remember it being that big a deal. But I think for British people, it might have been. Uh, I could be wrong, but that's just my opinion. So when Paul said those words, a lot of people pounced on them and accused him of being callous and cold hearted. But I look at that clip on YouTube now and some of the comments that I see, like, I can't believe in 2020 that we still have to explain the concept of shock and grief to some people. Mm. I mean, it doesn't really come across on radio, even though I included the clip. But if you look at Paul's face, it's obvious how he's feeling. But he obviously he can't articulate it in that moment. And I don't think anybody could who was that close to John. People don't really know what had happened to him in the 12 hours or so before that. Yeah. The story goes that he got a call at his home with Linda and it was, you know, early the next day at that point in England. And he was so distraught, he immediately went to the studio to record. He met George Martin there. And that's all they could do was they, they opened a big bottle of scotch and they drank that scotch down and they just commiserated with one another. So he was grieving all day and probably quite drunk when he came out to be surprised by all these reporters. Yeah, I mean, he didn't look, you know, he he looked stoned out and just mm -hmm. ashen. Yeah. yeah, 
exactly. It's interesting that Jack, I think it's Jackie Spencer in the documentary makes the point too of it, like, you know, it's sort of a Liverpudlian response. Like it's a drag. Yeah. When I hear it now, I hear, you know, the reporter saying like, how do you feel, Paul, whatever. And then it's sort of like, how do you expect me to feel? Like, you know, I sort of feel like, well, it's a drag, you know, like kind of sarcastic, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not trying to read too much into it because I do agree. I think it's a lot of shock and, you know, just a sort of a knee jerk reaction to it. But yeah, there's a lot behind it, obviously. And Paul is notoriously not good with death. He yeah. uh, had an almost similar response when his mother died. He asked his father, what will we do without her money? He didn't go yeah. to his father's funeral. He does not process this well. And to have to make a public statement just hours after he found out, it just wasn't his forte. It doesn't have anything to do with, I don't think, his actual mindset. No, not at all. I think the press were guiltier than fans in a way of demonizing him for that I mean I read something once that talked about how much the press loved Paul in the early days of the Beatles because he was so charming and friendly but after John's death he was really painted as kind of shallow and talentless even like I think it was happening to a degree with wings in the 70s but I think it definitely got worse after 1980. I think when John died there was a tendency to remember only the good things and it became very easy for people to say that he was the creative one and he was the genius and Paul was somehow lesser, which obviously isn't true. Yeah, it's almost like for every John reaction, there's an equal and opposite yeah. reaction to Paul. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah, and you made that point in the documentary, actually. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very consistent <laughs> when it comes to my, my blind defense of Paul McCartney. You're, you're, you're an apologist. Uh -huh. Apologist. I, just, I, just yeah. that I love that word. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I think also, like, if you look at the time period, too, you know, when you talk about the documentary where Paul and John's relationship was, you know, a point of contention, especially when you had sort of like the dust up around, will there ever be a Beatles reunion? And the, the mythology of them sort of watching SNL the night that Lauren Michaels makes the offer, you know, and them sort of thinking like, oh, maybe we should go down and it'll be really funny. And, and the public not really sure of where they stood with each other. And it was super important, this legendary partnership. And so to hear Paul sort of cap it off with it's a drag, of course, people are going to say, wow, Paul McCartney, what an asshole. And then the St. John Lennon thing starts and it's all, mm -hmm. it sort of perpetuates itself. Ugh, and Paul's been trying to explain this away for the past 30 years now. Oh my God. Yeah. Like we talked about, I think before Erica um, in a podcast about the song on new early days where he basically says I was there and you weren't, you don't know yeah. what happened. And he's defending his contributions and his ideas and him as a music. It's like, it's really tragic that the guy's like 78 now still having to answer to this. Somebody, I think maybe it's Jude in the documentary makes a point where it's like you can't compete with a dead man. I think that was Stephen Kennedy, actually, from the Dublin Beatles Festival. Yeah, he made a comparison to, to Joyce and one of his stories about competing with a ghost. Yeah. And even Paul was trying his whole career to kind of sidestep around it and address it without addressing it. If you haven't seen the 48 Hours with Paul McCartney special from the late 80s, it's on YouTube and I highly recommend it. It tracks him on that 8990 World Tour 
and they interview him and the guy asks him something about being compared to John and John's work. And he's like, basically says, well, it's it's not fair the way they portray me, but what can I do? And he says, it's unseemly to talk about it. He doesn't know how to address it because, you know, you can't compete with the dead. And then all of a sudden you're speaking ill of the dead just to preserve his own reputation. Exactly. There's yeah. no way he can win there. Honestly, I have to say it's one of my biggest bugbears as a Beatles fan. And I see it so often at Beatles events and in everyday life, especially with older male fans, to be honest, not to denigrate older male fans. But whenever I see this happen, it tends to be when it happens. Uh, Like last year, I was at a Beatles event and there was a guy playing some songs. My friend and I were there and he was introducing, uh, I think it was the Long and Winding Road. And he said to the crowd, I have a confession to make. Paul McCartney is my favorite Beatle. And the audience actually booed. Ew. Yeah. And my friend and I just looked at each other and we just couldn't believe it. Like, it's just this idea that, you know, you you can't say Paul is your favorite Beatle. You know, it's just. That's crazy. Yeah. I've never heard of that reaction happening. Like, is there something in particular that would have sparked that? Because I I just, I can't, there's nothing negative about that that I can think of I'm just assuming that it has to do with this myth of John being the cooler Beatle you know I mean I was at an I was doing a Beatles quiz a few years it was at just after new had been released actually and I was put on a team with this guy and I was just making conversation and I asked him if he'd bought it yet and he said oh god no I wouldn't buy that I'm a John Lennon fan Oh god. I I just I should have challenged him on it, but instead I just kind of I just kind of sheepishly asked, okay, so uh which John Lennon album is your favorite? And he said, Oh, well, I only know the song Imagine. What? Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, he should listen to your documentary where you rightfully point out very clearly that John's inspiration for getting back into music. And writing Double Fantasy was coming up. Paul's coming up yes. in the late 70s. Exactly. I mean, I think this is, I really, when I had the idea for this, I just, I, I knew I had to put this in there. I was like, I am going to make sure that Paul gets his recognition because, you know, you can't have, uh, you can't talk about John without Paul and vice versa. So it's just so important, I think. That is much appreciated. I think that we do a lot to, well, culture in general has done a lot to deify john as this peacenik saint christ figure which um and i think your documentary explores that but he was he was not that in real life he was not sinner nor saint so from what you heard from everybody that you interviewed and from your own impressions who do you think john actually was i think it just it continues to be a tough question and i knew it was a tough question when i asked everybody in the documentary but I think what comes across most is I think John was a supremely talented human being, emphasis on the human being part. I think it was Susan Ryan says in the documentary that he was not completely about peace and love, but he was also not not about peace and love. And I would agree with that. He was somewhere in between. But then again, aren't we all somewhere in between? You know, people mm. are complex and John was no different. Uh, he had his flaws and they are kind of detailed in the documentary. He could be hurtful to people who cared about him. He wasn't the best father in the world. He didn't treat women very well when he was younger and he could be jealous and insecure. But he knew all of this. Like he was always honest about his failings and tried to make up for them later on. So I think above all, he was an honest person. 
he was a revisionist, I think. He was constantly changing his opinions over the years. But one thing that you could say for John is that I think he always believed in what he was saying at the time that he said it. And that can get you in trouble sometimes. I mean, I remember speaking to you, Alison, when I interviewed you. Uh, we were talking about what John would have been like on social media. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think he would have been as outspoken as ever. But there were signs in 1980 that he was kind of maturing and becoming more at ease with himself. So hopefully that would have continued. I'd like to think also that he would be close to Julian and Sean and that he and Yoko would have hopefully continued their activism. So it's hard to say, but I don't think he would have changed too much apart from maybe coming to terms with some things in his past, regrets that he may have had. Yeah. And if you consider also like in 1980, he's just coming off of like five years yeah. of being a house husband, um, which I'm sure involved a lot of self-reflection, just having nothing to do except for take care of the baby and big bread, as he said. He would have loved quarantine raw making sourdough. <laughs> oh my God. He would have like a bread making TikTok. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> oh, I love this. This is a great uh, thing that's playing out in my head right now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Sarah, I love that. I think you're totally right. He was committed to whatever he said at when he said it. I think that's a wonderful way to sort of sum up John because people love to deify him or condemn him based on any sort of arbitrary experience or things he said. But John was evolving. He was a human. He was flawed. I love that you included the clip in your documentary of him saying I was a hitter. Um, mm -hmm. And he would always be the first person to say, I'm a bastard. I was a bastard. I did all these horrible things. And I think that's something that's really important to bring up when we talk about the 40th anniversary of his death and his legacy and that kind of thing. It's, it's only fair to to let him be the complicated person that he was. I really like what you said about John fully believing in what he was doing at any time. He had all of these periods or phases, you know, he had his psychedelic phase mm -hmm. and his, you know, so he calls fat Elvis phase and his heroin phase and his peacenik phase. There were so many different Johns and the fact that he was a songwriter meant that a lot of these different Johns were etched in stone at the time he wrote certain songs and it's very easy to paint a one-dimensional picture of somebody based on one song or another song but he really is this very complicated person as as we all are john's legacy is richer if you consider all of his parts yeah and i think it's it's very important to do that because then you're not being true to him really if you're not showing all sides of him and that's it's a difficult thing to do because there was just so much to his life and there's no way like I could make a 10-part series and I don't think I would be able to cover everything about who John was and what happened in his life but if I can just give a clearer picture and just you know talk about all sides to some degree then I think that I'd be happy with that. Yeah I think John would be happy with that. I don't think John would ever want to want to see himself or have other people see him as black and white. I think he would be the first to say, like, I have many slides, good and bad. Yeah, he definitely wouldn't have been good with cancel culture, I don't think. Yeah, I don't I don't think that would have been something like I can whenever I hear these stories of these kind of things happening recently, I just think, you know, John would definitely have had something to say about that. Yes, he would be retweeting. 
I, I would yep. have loved to see his his uh, Twitter around Donald Trump. It would have been funny. Yes. He would have been like <laughs> quote tweeting Trump being like, shut the fuck up, asshole, or like something. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, he and Mark Hamill would have been the top yes. two. Yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that, that would have been amazing. Ugh, yes. That lives in my brain in a special place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I want to turn to something else that I think is a very important part of your documentary, and it is that you are a next-gen fan, that you were born after he died, and that you're still focusing on John Lennon nonetheless. What do you think John's legacy will be for the next 40 years, the next 50 years? And how is it different from what maybe John's legacy should be? Well, most importantly, I think he'll continue to be remembered as one of the greatest musicians and songwriters that there's ever been so I don't think you know I don't think that will ever change I think he'll still be remembered for his activism and how outspoken he was because I think that's one of the things people loved about him but there are some things that I would like to see us move on from some of the things we talked about you know the idea that he was some kind of peace guru which you know I don't think he would be comfortable with at all and then going back to what we touched on earlier with Paul he would have I think he would have definitely wanted people to see him and Paul as equals you know it's that thing where even with sibling rivalries it's like you can say whatever you want about your Mm. brother or your sister but no one else can Mm. so Mm -hmm. I think I think that's what the relationship was like between John and Paul so I don't think he would be happy with how certain people have portrayed Paul over the years and then As with the myths about John being a saint, there's also a lot of myths about him, you know, supposedly being a terrible person that just aren't true. Like, I think certain biographies might have been responsible for this since he died. Uh, You know, stories about violence that have been denied by Cynthia, by Yoko, by Julian. Uh, So I hope we can move on from that to going forward, especially because, you know, he isn't here to defend himself and there will eventually come a time when other people who knew him aren't around to defend him either so I think it's important to move past that but I think the best thing that we can do is to celebrate his music because above all that's what I think he would want to be remembered for I mean he sometimes said that he didn't care what people would think of him after he died but by 1980 he was really starting to embrace his legacy as a Beatle and talking about what he hoped audiences would take from his new music. So although nobody really knows for sure what he would be doing now, I think that the mindset that he was in in 1980 is a nice way to remember him because he was in a good place personally and creatively. I think it was Ken Womack on the documentary who was speaking about John perhaps touring and how he was sketching out like a stage plot and coming to terms with the fact that touring had changed and he would have Mm. to have what pyrotechnics in his show and I think that's a really fun and I actually didn't know that I didn't either yeah no I I did was interesting (laughs) (laughs) interesting to think about John forward thinking that much being like like I would love to see John like coming to grips with the fact that he needs pyrotechnics at his show he'd be like what the fuck (laughs) well he saw the rock show Paul McCartney he saw live and let die he's like oh god (laughs) you know and then you look at what Paul does you know yeah it's 
so funny. He's like, oh, I'm going to have to do like a wings thing. <laughs> so yeah, like that. So that was very interesting, you know, kind of see like what John would have done. And, you know, the next like at least few years, probably done some touring. And I can't remember who it was that mentioned that the Beatles probably would have reunited for Live Aid. And Yeah, that was Stephen, mm, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And how complicated that would have been. And I agree. He you know, says in the documentary that he wouldn't have wanted to see that, which I, I <laughs> kind of agree. I agree. I think that would have been anticlimactic, I think he said. Wasn't it Led Zeppelin who reunited for Live Aid and it just did not work out at all? Yeah. So personally, Sarah, obviously you just made this amazing documentary. How has John's legacy impacted your life and career? Do you see yourself doing more of these like Beatles or John related radio documentaries? I hope so, yeah. I mean, I've often tried to incorporate the Beatles into what I do. When I started out in college radio, my friend and I had a Beatles radio show. So, yeah, so it's just any excuse, really, any way that I can bring the Beatles into what I do. It's great. I mean, I would love to make more Beatles related documentaries in the future. There's just so many things you could cover. I mean, I would love to do something related to Paul at some point. It's just about really when a good story comes to you. So I'm sure something will come to me in the future. Well, we can't wait to hear it and we'll be happy to talk about Paul in any context, anytime, or I'm speaking for me, anytime. Oh, you know, um, I love to talk about Paul. Come on. <laughs> good old Paul. Okay, so I think that we have really made people excited about this documentary. I hope so. So where can people find this? And um, I think you said it was available as of the day we're dropping this episode, which is the 8th of December. Yes, it's streaming on our uh, digital station, Today FM Rock Anthems from 9pm Irish time. But you can also find it on todayfm.com from December the 8th and also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and a few other places where you get your podcasts. Um, so by the time people hear this, I'm sure uh, the best bet would be to find it on the website. Excellent. Amazing. I'm so excited to share this with people. I think it's such a wonderful addition to the many, many tributes about John, because not only is it from a second gen point of view, but it explores topics that we don't always talk about during this time. And so I love it. So Thank you so much. Where can we find you and your other work? And is there anywhere that you'd like people to get to know you better, follow you? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at sarahstacy92. And my website is sarahstacyaudio.com if anyone is interested in hearing any of my other radio programs or podcasts. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. This has been oh, so really much wonderful. fun having you on. You have to come back. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. And I'm so glad that you were both a part of the documentary and that you enjoyed it so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for including us. Uh, it was really, really, really fun and a great excuse to talk about John and, and his legacy. And we're back and we end things the way we always end things with our obsession of the moment. Allison, what's yours? Okay, well, I have two. I play by my own rules. Sometimes you just can't pick one. I got, you know, I got to do two. So first, we talked on our, what's it, our, our Flaming Pie episode, our special about the box set, about the stuff you could buy on paulmccartney.com that was Flaming Pie themed. And we each got something. 
but I got the Flaming Pie Stamper because it was like my dream as a kid to have the freaking stamper so I could just stamp everything with the Flaming <laughs> Pie. So I finally got it because uh, Paul McCartney.com is really backed up apparently because of COVID and all that good stuff. Um, but it is amazing and I haven't used it yet because <laughs> I can't find my ink pad and I'm just, you know, I should just buy a new one. Um, but I'm so happy to have it. It completes my life. I feel like a void has been filled. Oh my God. Do I need to send you like something from michaels.com? I will send this to you right away. Oh my God. What? No, you don't have to. I, <laughs> I really think I have, I'm pretty sure of an ink pad. Anyway, stay tuned for my saga of the ink pad. No, but my second one, well, God, we're all super excited for McCartney 3 right now, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And I was so stoked. I saw earlier in the week that a McCartney 3 mural went up in London. And I was thinking, I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope they do one here in LA because they did, you know, an Egypt station one when that came out. And that was really cool. So I saw, shout out to um, one of the girls I follow on Instagram, Caitlin, who posted on her story that she was now by Capitol Records and a McCartney 3 mural had gone up. So I woke up really early next morning and I went down to see it myself and it was it's very cool we posted it on our Instagram Facebook Twitter head over there and check it out but it has lyrics and the music to try to make this spoiler free but I think it's probably my favorite song on the new album but we'll get to that in a future episode the next episode actually because I think the next time we record is going to be all about McCartney 3 after it comes out on December 18th yes exactly and how could we not I mean duh duh (laughs) Anyway, so so yeah, that, those are my two things. They're tied. I can't choose between them. And Erica, what is yours? Mine is very related to your second obsession because when you posted the photo of this mural, I was looking at it, studying every nook and cranny of course to see what it was all about. And I noticed that there was this hashtag on it and a QR code and the hashtag is 12 days of Paul. Mm-hmm. And that sounded super fun. So it's like, what is 12 Days of Paul? And if you search it, you'll end up at 12days.mccartney3.com. What it is is a map. And the map pinpoints 12 locations around the world. There's Tokyo, there's Sydney, Liverpool, London, Paris, Berlin, uh, New York City, Toronto, Chicago, L.A., Mexico City, and Rio. So those are the 12 locations. And every day, it looks like one of the little die, the little three die that is the McCartney three logo symbol, turns from white to red. And the red die have what 12 Days of Paul is, the white die, and me in New York City. I'm still, I'm still still white. So yeah, yeah, I'm still white. Sucks. But what it seems to be is that the 12 Days of Paul seems to represent the 12 songs on McCartney 3, or at least the 12 basic songs on McCartney 3. I'm sure there will be endless special cuts. But those are the (laughs) so 12 songs, 12 Days of Christmas. What it seems to be is a it's not a competition. What is it? It's it's just a it's a call for musicians to see their covers. So every day in each city, and this is something I'm very excited about for when it comes to my city, they build one of these murals with the sheet music to the song that's tied to the city and to that day of the 12 Days of Paul. 
each city gets a different song as their focus cover and they get one of these murals built somewhere in the city i have to find where it's going to be in new york if you live in one of those cities and find it we'd love to see what you're seeing because it looks very cool working in music myself it's interesting to watch this campaign and paul has said paul's team said that there's not going to be a single you know, from this album, which is odd, but not unheard of. Paul's very odd sometimes with his choices. And that is Mm -hmm. very cool. But it's interesting, the rollout has to do with these covers. So in some cases, people aren't going to hear Paul do these songs first, you're going to hear somebody random do it. And that's very intriguing. It's a very uh, interesting way to do it. Yeah, it's weird. And it, it only looks like they're offering a very short part of each song. So they're only asking people to cover like a page of the sheet music. So they're not they're not asking for a full cover. And yes, you can find this if you you know, it's not officially out yet, but it's out. You know, if you, if you know where to look, you can find it. But yeah, for a lot of people, it will be the first exposure to this music will be through other people's interpretations. Yeah, it's 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 pretty cool. And, you know, not to get too much into McCartney 3, but I did get a quote unquote text from Paul this morning. I don't know if you got this too, Erica, offering like a violet version. I'm like, Paul, you've got to chill on these different color variants. (laughs) I guess he's ghosting me because I didn't get the text and I would have wanted the text because purple is my favorite color and I probably would buy it. Oh, damn. Yeah. Damn you, Paul. Let's see. It's uh, oh, special violet edition. Ooh, that sounds so nice. Why didn't he text me? Damn it, Paul. Oh, it's like a hot pink, actually, it looks like. Anyway, I might get one of these, actually. But yeah, I, I it's Paul, like, chill on these, these colors, bro. Like, you've got, like, 60 million colors. You've got the whole goddamn rainbow. It would be cool to see all of them in the same room. It would be expensive, but it would cool. be cool. Yeah, I'm sure somebody's doing it. If you're collecting all the, all the color variants, like, let us know, because... We admire you. We applaud your effort. Yeah. And as for the 12 Days of Paul covers, we're going to get a lot of chance to hear these different songs in a lot of different ways. And that's exciting. I'm sure we'll get into this on our McCartney 3 episode. But the way he markets his his albums is always interesting. There is always something different. I mean, from the 70s, from his adventures with Percy Thrillington, which was actually our first episode. Yeah. God, that takes me back. Yeah, really. He's always got some interesting marketing ploy to get people interested. And I'm really interested in this. I think this is going to be fun. If you search on Twitter, hashtag 12 Days of Paul, there's quite a few people who have jumped on on the challenge. Good. You know, it's something to bring a little bit of joy to this time of year, especially in this year, in this crazy effed up year. It's great. You know, we have something to look forward to in a couple of weeks. You know, new Paul record and a ton of coverage. People are home by themselves or just with their small family units. And he recorded it in Rockdown, as he would like to say in his dad jokes. Um, So other people can kind of come together alone, you know, be together apart during this weird quarantine time to share the new music in their own Rockdown situations. Yeah. And that's very clever. So we'll be watching that as it unfolds. And yeah, again, we'll be talking more McCartney 3 our next episode. 
Well, until then, thank you for listening to Because the Beatles. And again, if you'd like to subscribe to us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now, Spotify, etc., and give us a rating and review, we would love that so much. Yes, yes, we would. And please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. If you find a 12 Days of Paul mural in your city, please tag us. We'll see all of them. All of them. Also, you can email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye.